Yeah, those of you who know me are probably a little bit afraid because you remember that sermon that I gave on Daniel that was like 75 minutes long, and I tend to go a little bit longer. Anyway, I will try to do my best to, uh, to, to, to be to the point, but there are a lot of things that need to be covered today. And so, uh, let, us, let, us, let us jump into the, to the book of Isaiah. So, Isaiah, as a prophet, as you've been going over this, this book for the last several weeks, contrasts the holiness of God with the sinfulness of his people and the sinfulness of the world. This contrast can be seen in several places. Uh, First, God is called the Holy One of Israel. We saw it in our text here. He is the Holy One of Israel. And God's people are represented by Isaiah. And when he encounters God in Isaiah chapter 6 during his calling, he says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips from among a people of unclean lips. And he knew he had seen the glory of the Lord. So, You see this contrast, the holiness of God, the sinfulness of His people. Isaiah, the book, shows that God is faithful to His end of their relationship. He is always the Holy One. He is always devoted. He is always faithful to His end of the relationship. But the book of Isaiah also shows that Israel is not. Israel is always wandering away. So this idea of covenant comes into play in the book of Isaiah and in the chapters that we are looking at today. So it starts with the declaration. The book of Isaiah starts with this declaration that Israel has broken the covenant. It it may not be as apparent to some, but he says, he starts off his prophecy by saying, give ear, O heavens, hear, O earth, give ear, O heavens, for the Lord has spoken. You have broken my commands, he's going to then say. I'm summarizing. But give ear, O heavens and earth. He's calling the covenant witnesses out. And he's telling Israel that they have broken the law. They have broken the Mosaic covenant. And there are clear indicators throughout the book that Israel is going to go into exile. First to Assyria, the northern kingdom, and then to Babylon. I know you've covered this, but I want to make sure that we're all on the same page. Since Babylon is in view, I'll focus here. And there are several texts prior in the Old Testament that talk about this, and then in Isaiah that talk about this. If you read a text like Deuteronomy 4 or Deuteronomy 28-30, through 30, you see that God had told the people that if they transgress the law, if they transgress the covenant, He's going to send them into exile. And He says, and you will go into exile. It's not just that this is a possibility, that it is actually a foregone conclusion. God is doing this. The text in Deuteronomy and Isaiah then culminate and continue to talk about this. Isaiah 6, no, 6 notes, whenever Isaiah is being called to prophetic ministry, he is told that even though a tenth of the people might remain in the land, right? so that's after the Assyrian exile, he's going to fell the tree again. He's going to, 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 to ravish the land again. And he's talking about there the, the Babylonian exile. The judgments against the nations contain judgments and even start with, with judgments against Places like Babylon and Egypt and Assyria. And in Isaiah 39, 38 and 39, Hezekiah is told that because he invited the Babylonians in, that they are going to go to Babylon. Even some of his own children will go. So as we encounter our text today in Isaiah 47 and 48, Isaiah 40 through 46 give us a picture that that Malachi actually summarized pretty well. We see the the sovereignty and the supremacy of God. And it starts off with this statement that God is going to lead His people home from exile. Everything that follows in 40-66 through is going to have that theme in mind in one way or another. 
It's also going to be seen that God is supreme in all things. He alone is God. There's stark denunciation of idolatry, which you saw in 45 in particular, 44 and 45 in particular. And then in 45, he declares that he's going to send a servant. He names this servant as Cyrus, who's going to deliver his people from the hand of Babylon. But he's going to continue this servant language, and it's not going to be Cyrus that he's going to continue this servant language with as we continue. The pride of the heart of Babylon is going to be the focal point. That's what we see in 46, and we're going to see it in our text today, but that God will save Zion. He will save Jerusalem. He will dwell again with his people. But how is this going to happen? So the main point of our text, our very short text today, is this. Yahweh brings, the Lord, Yahweh brings about the salvation of his people through the judgment of Babylon, showing that he alone is God. Yahweh brings about the salvation of his people through the judgment of Babylon, showing that he alone is God. And then this is a type of a greater salvation that is offered through his servant Jesus to all nations by the working of his Spirit. So this judgment of Babylon that shows that God, is, God alone is God, that saves Israel, is just a type of a greater salvation that is offered through his servant Jesus to all nations by the working of his Spirit. So as we jump into the text of Isaiah 47 and 48, I'm going to read and make comment, and then we're going to to talk about the implications of those things. It's a long text, I want to do justice to it, so I'll read through a little piece and then I'll make a comment on that piece. But in chapter 47, I'm going to break the the structure up into two main points, and then I'm going to have a third applicational idea at the end. The first one is on 47. Chapter 47 is about Yahweh's judgment against the arrogant heart of Babylon, and this brings the hope of redemption to God's people. So Yahweh's judgment against the arrogant heart of Babylon brings the hope of redemption to God's people. In Isaiah 46, it was focused on the judgment of Babylon. And at the end of the text, there was a a declaration that salvation would come to Zion. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Salvation is going to happen, but how is this salvation going to be brought about? Well, chapters 47 and 48 are going to describe that the salvation of Israel is going to be brought about by the judgment of Babylon and then through the coming of this servant. And then next week, the sermon will be on this servant. Chapter 49, the first several verses are about the servant. Notice how much shorter that text is, right? So whenever you get a guest preacher, you always give them the longest texts. I preached at my church last week, and I had a very long psalm, and then I looked at what my pastor is preaching this morning, and I, as we were going over it as a family, and I was like, it's, it's so small. Like, the text that you have is so small. So... But I guess that's what you get to do when you make the schedule. So Isaiah 47 and 48 describe the judgment of Babylon and the salvation of Israel. And so 47, 1 through 3, it says this. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind flour. Put off your veil. Strip off your robe. Uncover your legs. Pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered and your disgrace shall be seen. I will take vengeance and I will spare 
no one. So this is stark imagery. Yahweh is putting Babylon in a low position. We see that Babylon is personified. So the nation and the city is pictured as a person. And it's described with the language of a prostitute. So the uncovering, and it's actually just a revealing of who she really is. You're not going to really be thought of as delicate anymore, not that they ever really were, but you are going to be exposed for who you are. We read this language, and it seems shocking to us, but this is stock language for the picture of idolatry that is given in the Bible. Read the book of Hosea, and if you think this is shocking, read like Jeremiah 2 and 3, Read Ezekiel 16, right? I mean, there's, there's some more shocking language than this. So we see this language that speaks of adultery and idolatry kind of synonymously. And it's picturing Babylon in this way. God says He's going to uncover her. That word is a picture of exile. Actually, that word means exile. So He's, he's using kind of a double meaning within this word. He's saying, I'm going to uncover you. I'm going to send you away. I'm going to send you away. And it ends by saying God is going to take vengeance. And then we get to verse 4 and it says, Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is His name, is the Holy One of Israel. So we go from that stark language to Isaiah here kind of bursting in and he praises God for exposing Babylon for who she is, for this nation, for what it is. So at the statement of judgment of of their future captors, Isaiah breaks out into praise that God is their Redeemer's He's the Lord of hosts, and He is the Holy One. So that language is actually, for Israel to hear, a very comforting language that God is going to do this. Verses 5-7 through go on with this picture of Babylon. Sit in silence. Go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called the mistress of kingdoms. Chaldea is just another, basically another name for Babylon. I was angry with my people, I profaned my heritage. I gave them into your hand. You showed them no mercy. On the aged, you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. You said, I shall be mistress forever. So, that, so you did not lay these things to heart or remember their end. So these verses, they go back to that image of the humiliation of Babylon. She who was once a mistress to the nations, Babylon, to the kingdoms, will no longer serve and that role to, due to her arrogance. Right? Think of the words, I will be mistress forever. He continues that adulterous language as well. God declares that the exile of Judah will happen because of his judgment and anger on them, but that Babylon was too harsh in the way that they did this judgment. We see the same idea found when God is telling Assyria that they're going to judge the nation of Israel in Isaiah 10. Assyria is is the the staff in God's hand, but they think that they're the ones doing it, and their arrogant heart is going to be judged in the end. Verses 8 and 9 are going to continue the flow of thought. Now therefore, hear this, you lover of pleasures, still talking to Babylon, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am and there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. These two things shall come to you in a moment in one day. The loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure in spite of your many sorceries and the great powers of your enchantments. So here we get a picture of the pride of Babylon and God's judgment against her. Her declaration was against God. I am and there is no one besides me. 
In English, this sounds like a play on the, the divine name, I am. It's not quite as apparent in the original language, but you actually do see this language of God declaring himself in this exact way in Isaiah. So if you go to a text like Isaiah 45, 18, God says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Same language is used here. So you see that in this text, Babylon has placed herself in the position of God. I am and there is no other. Well, that is not going to sit or bode well with the Almighty. We've seen declarations over and over again. Think again Isaiah 44 about the supremacy of God in all things. He alone is Lord. There is no one besides Him. And despite Babylon's many sorceries and enchantments, all will be taken away from them. She will become a widow and childless in the same day. That's just a way of expressing everything is going to be taken from you. Everything will be removed from you because of the pride that is in your heart. So verses 10 and 11 are going to continue this picture of arrogance. You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. And you said in your heart, I am, there is no one besides me. Repetition of that statement. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone. And ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. Notice the, the repetition. Evil, disaster, ruin will come upon you. It's just heaping it up. And by mentioning that same idea three times, it's really going to happen. Babylon felt secure. Babylon felt hidden. Babylon felt strong. She felt wise and again repeats that language, putting herself in the place of God. I am and there is no one besides me. Even her idolatries, which this text refers to as charms, enchantments, cannot put away the ruin and the disaster that is coming. The Lord has purposed it. And then in 12 through 14, which Cindy read really well, there's this mocking tone that Isaiah, that God is giving through the prophet Isaiah, where he says, Stand fast in your enchantments and your many sorceries, with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you may be able to succeed. Perhaps you may inspire terror. You are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you. Those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars, who, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you. Behold, they are like stubble. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. No coal for warming oneself is this. No fire to sit before. Such to you are those with whom you have labored, who you have done business with from your youth. They wander about each in his own direction, those counselors. There is none to save you. So, in these verses, we see this picture of God mocking or taunting them, saying, stand fast in your enchantments. Maybe they'll succeed. Maybe you can triumph over God. This sounds a lot like, we see this in other places. I saw this actually just a few chapters ago in the book of Isaiah when he's taunting them with idolatry, and that text is going to come up. It actually comes up here in those verses that I just read. 
But we also see it in texts like Elijah, when he was at Mount Carmel, right? When he was taunting the prophets of, of Baal. And he was like, well, maybe your God doesn't hear you. Maybe if you just speak a little bit louder. Maybe he's taking a nap, or he's using the restroom, or he's on a long journey. Maybe if you just keep talking, maybe something will happen. And of course, the prophet, when, when they have that taunt, which is a type of prophecy, they know that nothing will happen. Because these gods are weak. They're empty. They do not profit. They do not do anything or bring anything about. All of the idolatrous counselors have come to nothing. An example is the picture of astrology that he gives. Those who divide the heavens, which is common within the Babylonian and Assyrian religions. It's a complete misunderstanding of creation. All of the idols and counselors of Babylon are nothing. They are like stubble that cannot deliver. They will be like stubble consumed with fire. The power of the flame coming from the Lord is how they're going to be consumed is what this text just said. Yahweh has the power of the flame and then contrast that, the counsel that they have received leads to wandering has no flame, has no fire. They cannot keep themselves warm by it. No coal for warming oneself is this. No fire to sit before it. So as Isaiah gives this imagery, he's, he's going back to Isaiah 44 when the, he's talking about those who fashion idols are good for nothing. And he talks about it, and he talks about the idols, how they profit none, and he even talks about the fire there. So I think here he's rekindling that language, and he's showing the nothingness of idolatry. The folly and the foolishness of idols. That's a lot, right, in that text. But there are several things that we see in this text that I want us to reflect on. First, as Malachi mentioned earlier, and as you're going to see in pretty much every single chapter in the book of Isaiah, the supremacy of Yahweh, He is the judge of all the earth. So in this text, we see the supremacy of Yahweh. God is the judge of all the earth. Brothers and sisters, when everything seems like it's falling apart, when there's chaos, when there's uncertainty, when there's unsurety, when at work and at home you feel like you're being attacked by, 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 by misinformation, by things that are going wrong, by misunderstanding, when you don't get along with your spouse or your children or your coworkers or your boss, when everything seems like it's falling apart, understand this, God is in control. And he's in control like no other. He's in control way better than you are in control. And when you feel that the world is pressing in on you for evil and for harm, this is not an uncommon feeling. You do not find yourself alone in, in, in biblical or Christian history. If you've ever read a psalm, just open up the psalms, point your finger down, you're probably going to find David talking about how he is in distress and fleeing from his enemies, but God is the shield or the Savior or the hedge or whatever it is about him that brings about deliverance. You are not alone. And understand this, that God takes vengeance on his enemies. That may sound like an odd thing, but that is a very hopeful thought for the believer. It permeates the Old Testament. It permeates the New Testament. The judgment of God's enemies brings peace to the people of God. 
That's what we see here. The way that God is going to bring about that salvation for Zion at the end of 46 is through the judgment of Babylon in 47. The way that God is going to bring about the salvation of His people is by the judgment of His enemies. Read a text like Ezekiel 35, 34, then 35, then 36, and you see that this is the case. We were just in Exodus chapter 7. You see that this is the case. God brings about the salvation of His people through the judgment. Through judgment. This is a recurring theme throughout Scripture. But we trust in the Lord to bring this. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. We entrust ourselves and our situations, no matter what is going on, to the Holy One of Israel. To the Lord of hosts. He is more than capable. So I don't, I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what you feel is pressing you. Health concerns. Financial concerns. Interpersonal, relational concerns. I guarantee every one of those applies to at least one person in this church right now. And probably multiple of those to all of us. Sometimes we make this a little bit more complicated than it really is. God is in control. His supremacy over all things is astounding. And in the middle of this, we see that Babylon, the enemy of God, is being judged for their pride and arrogance. These are not characteristics of the Christian life. Pride and arrogance have nothing to do with what it looks like as a Christian. You don't read the Beatitudes and say, blessed are the proud, for they shall be haughty. Right? It's not there. Matthew 5, look it up. You can trust me, but look it up. Right? Double check me. Right? But instead you see, blessed are the poor in spirit. This pride and arrogant thought of the, the king of Babylon and of the people of Babylon and of the nation of Babylon is antithetical to the life of the people of God. It is the antithesis of what God's people look like. But what do God's people look like? Well, they look, they look like people who are humble. They look like people who are teachable. They look like people who desire to know the Lord, to know wisdom. And above all, they are people who love the Lord with everything that they are, and they love their neighbor as themselves. Those are the two great markers of the Christian. It's all over the pages of Scripture. It's in the Ten Commandments. Love God, love others. When Jesus is asked what the two greatest commandments are, He says the, the, the best one, the, the, the top is, love the Lord your God with all that you are. I'm paraphrasing, with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And he says, and there's another that's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Instead of pride and arrogance, let everything that you say and everything that you do filter through the lens of, am I loving God? Am I glorifying God? Am I loving my neighbor? Before, Dad, before you speak to your children today, when they inevitably do something that is, that is wrong and sinful and grates on your nerves, think about the love of God and the love of them. What does that look like? Worker, tomorrow when you're at work and your boss tells you to do something that you understand that is his job or that he should do or that she should do, and you have a difficulty, seek to, to live that out with humility and grace and love. Live like a Christian in all aspects. Do not, do not basically don't be like Babylon, right? 
And, and certainly don't go home and say, ah, it's, it's me alone, there is no other, right? No Muhammad Ali syndrome, right? We are not the greatest, right? He is the greatest. Christian humility looks like the Beatitudes. Go, go home today and read Matthew 5. Christian life looks like the fruit of the Spirit. Go home today and read Galatians 5. Reflect on that. That is what the average Christian looks like. Not the super Christian. Not your pastors. Not people who do this for a living. It's what every Christian is called to look like. And God calls His people everywhere to remove their idolatry and trust in Him. Idols have no profit whatsoever. They're complete foolishness and folly. Christian, what folly are you holding on to? What folly are you clinging to incomprehensibly? Get rid of it. John ends, I believe it's 1 John, where he's like, free yourself from idols. Run from them. Brothers and sisters, you cannot be attached to God and to an idol. God is supreme, and He requires complete and utter devotion. He alone is God, and we're going to see in our text in the next chapter, He will give His glory to no other. He will give His glory to no other. Those of you who are not believers, who have wandered in, I'm sorry, I'm not the normal preacher. It'll get better if you come back next week. Or if you're live streaming, I guess that's the same, the same rings true. But if you've, if you've found yourself in here and, and you're unbelieving, I want you to, to reflect on Ephesians chapter 2. Go home, find a friend, talk to one of the pastors here, talk to me afterwards. Think about Ephesians 2 and your condition. You need to be reconciled to God today. Understand that the unbelieving heart is opposed to God. I think one of, the, one of the great disservices that we do when we talk about evangelism is we, we act as if everybody is fine with God, but your life would just be a little bit better if you had Jesus too. No. Your greatest concern and need that you have today is to be reconciled to God. And the only way that you can do that is to give up your idolatry, to soften your heart, and to trust in Jesus Christ for, for your salvation and forgiveness of sins. It is He alone who can reconcile you to the Father. Again, uh, one of the it, anybody in the pew next to you would be happy to explain that to you more. So please, please, just reach out to someone if you have questions about that. So let's move into Isaiah 48. In this text, we see Israel's redemption from Babylon through the servant. And I'm going to try not to hijack next week's text too much. But there's a little bit of that in there too. So he's introducing the things that are going to happen next week. So I was reading this text and I was like, oh man, it should go with 46. And then I was reading this text and I was like, oh, it should go with 49. And I was like, yeah, but you got to break it somewhere. You can't do all of 46 through 49 in one sermon. So it's, it's building off of what came before and it's going to lead into this discussion of a servant, which Josh will be preaching next week, I believe. And it says this in the first few verses. So, well, in the introduction, I mentioned the exile for Israel was an inevitable conclusion. This is true, but so was their redemption from exile. So their exile was an inevitable conclusion. They were going to go into exile from the vantage point of Isaiah's writing. Judah is still going. It's a future-looking thing. 
I assume that this was explained to you. Isaiah's prophesying this somewhere around 700 B.C. He's looking forward to the Babylonian exile, which begins in 605 B.C. So he's forward-looking here. And he's telling the people that they're going into exile, but don't worry, while that is inevitable, so is their redemption from exile. Here, God's redemption of the people will use the imagery from the Old Testament. In this chapter, we're going to see language from creation. We're going to see language from the Abrahamic covenant. And we're going to see language from the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings. He's using this language to talk about how God is working among his people. And if you read the Bible and you become an avid reader of the Bible, one of the things that you will begin to notice, the same language keeps appearing over and over and over again. Read the book of Genesis and see how many times, especially after chapter 12, the ideas of land, offspring, blessing, and cursing pop up in the text. It's like every chapter, multiple times, all over the place. Be a keen reader of the text. So here, Isaiah 48 is going to transition from the judgment of Babylon to the salvation and return from the Babylonian exile of Israel. So the first two verses say this, Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel and who come from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. For they call themselves after the holy city and they stay themselves on the God of Israel the Lord of hosts is his name. So it introduces the transition. And here we see the imperative here. He tells them, hear, O Israel. Like, listen to this, O house of Jacob. Listen up. When Israel hears this, it's like you hearing, for God so loved. I only used a couple of words there. But when I say, for God so loved, what comes into your mind? You can say it. Somebody's speaking in tongues. I can't, I can't. I need an interpreter. I just heard mumbling. So, some really loud. John 3.16, right? That's, I assume that's what the cacophony of tongues was saying, right? John 3.16. For God so loved. That's what you think of, right? When Israel hears the word here, and it's in an imperative form, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord your God, the Lord, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And it goes on from there. But when they see that word here, when they hear that word here, it draws their attention back to that. And this declaration in Deuteronomy 6.4 is one of stark monotheism. There is one God. Only one. There is only one God. And it is a declaration to love that God. So in 48, 3-5, it's going to build on that. The former things I have declared of old. Those things like here. They went out from my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them and they came to pass. Because I know that you are obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead brass. I declared them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you lest you should say, my idol did them. My carved image and my metal image commanded them. So God says, I told you what I was going to do long in advance. Again, just read Deuteronomy 4. Read Deuteronomy 28, 29, 30. And you'll see that God has announced these things since he brought them up out of the land of Egypt. He was clear. And he did this so that the people would know, oh, this was God who did these things. It wasn't my carved image who did these things. And he talks about how he had to do this because the people were obstinate. 
right? Look at the language that he uses there. He uses the word obstinate, but then he says, you were like an, your neck is an iron sinew. They have stiff-necked people. Can you imagine if you had a neck of iron, right? Your forehead brass. Ladies, your husband may be hard-headed, but his forehead is not literally made out of brass, right? He's trying to get at this idea of these are a completely stubborn people. So he has to announce it to them ahead of time. So verses 6-8 through eight are going to transition from the imperative here to this language, you have heard. And we're going to see what it says. You have heard. Now see all of this. Sorry, now see all of this, and will you not declare it? From this time forth, I announce to you new things. So the old things, new things are coming. Hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. So he's doing a new thing is the idea that he's giving. Before today, you had never heard of them. Lest you should say, behold, I knew them. Right? You have never heard. You have never known. From of old, your ear has not been opened. For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously and that from birth you were called a rebel. So here he's saying, I'm doing something new and I haven't revealed it to you before, at least in this fullness. Why? Because I know that you're rebellious and you just rebel against it. So you're stubborn and you're rebellious. So I had to announce it to you now. I had to announce those two things, things to you before because you were stubborn. I have to announce these things to you now because you were rebellious and you would have transgressed. So as he makes this transition to you have heard, he's going to use some important words in Isaiah's prophecy. So another reason for us to read the Bible keenly, he says you have heard, and he talks about seeing as well. He uses the word to hear and to see. When God calls Isaiah to prophesy, he says that he's going to give his message to a people that hearing they will not hear and seeing they will not see. So these are people that will receive the message but this message will harden them. They won't hear it. They won't see it. He's going to contrast this with a picture of the Messianic kingdom. In Isaiah 11, when he's talking about the root from the stump of Jesse that's going to come forth, he talks about this one from David's household that's going to rule and reign who will not rule by what his eyes see or by what his ears hear, but in justice and righteousness he's going to judge that the meek and the weak of the earth. So here for Isaiah to use these key words that he picks up on over and over again throughout his prophecy is a sign of judgment against them. You have heard, you have seen, but you don't know. I knew you would deal treacherously with me. I knew that that's what, it would, uh, what's what, what would happen. So God has declared these things from of old. He's declaring new things to them. And these new things that he's declaring concern his servant, which he's going to talk about in verses in a few verses from now. So 9 through 11, for not my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. So God says, he gives kind of the, the reason why. This is the mission statement. This is why I am doing this. This is why I've sent you to exile. 
this is why I'm judging the Babylonians, and this is why I'm going to redeem you, it is for the sake of my holy name, is what he says. And just in case, we're like, well, maybe he's doing it for, for other reasons, right? He says, for my name's sake, right? And then he says, for my own sake, for my own sake, how should my name be profaned? And then he ends it with, my glory I will not give to another. God is acting on behalf of his glory and his glory alone. And again, if you read Deuteronomy 28, a central text to all of the prophets, if you read Deuteronomy 28, God says that he's going to get glory when Israel goes into exile, or if they don't go into exile. And he's going to say, because the nations will see what I have done either way and say, how great and awesome is this God. God is acting so that the world will know who he is. We saw this in the Exodus class this morning. All of these texts are saying very similar things. So it's going to move back to this language of hear. Verses 12 and 13. Hear, O Jacob. Hear me, O Jacob. I translated that a little different than if you're looking at your ESV. It says, listen to me, O Jacob. It's the word hear. It's the same word that was used up above twice already. So I wish that they would have, 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 have said here as well. It's that Shema word. Hear, O Jacob. Hear me, O Jacob. O Israel, whom I called. I am he. I am the first and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I called to them, they stand forth together. So God is saying, I am alone, the one true God. Hear me, Jacob. Listen to me. I am the creator who sustains all things. We saw that in the text that was the call to worship this morning, didn't we? The Colossians 1 text that talks about how Christ has this power in his hand. He's the creator of the heaven and the earth, the witnesses of their covenant relationship. He is the one who laid the foundation of the earth, who spread out the heavens. And he's the one to whom all of creation is at his beck and call. Whatever he wants, it will do. So then he says, assemble all of you and hear. Again, the word hear, it's translated as listen. Assemble all of you and hear. Who among you has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon. So God is going to perform his purpose on Babylon. And his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken and called him. I have brought him. And he will prosper in his way. Notice the, the transition in person there. Right? So God is speaking and God is saying, I am going to send a person who is going to prosper, who will be against the Babylonians, who is going to be against these evil forces. Draw near to me, hear this. From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. And the time it came to be, I have, from the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord has sent me and his spirit. So you see this servant who is going to come. It doesn't use that exact language right here. But who is going to come and who, who is going to bring the spirit with him. That servant is going to be explained more in Isaiah 49. And I'll talk about it in the application and in the last point of the sermon a little bit later. So 17 through 19, thus says the Lord, the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God, who teaches you to profit. This is in contrast to idolatry. Idols are always described as those things which do not profit. 
I have taught you to profit, who leads you in the way that you should go. Oh, that you would have paid attention to my commandments, that your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like the grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. So he gives this picture of this thing that he's declared from of old, and then he uses it to describe, this was my intention from creation. This is the way that I purpose things from the time that I made a covenant with Abraham. He uses heavens and earth for creation. He talks about the sand on the sea and the the descendants like grains of grass to talk about his promises to Abraham. I have been declaring these things all along. Have you been hearing? Have you been seeing? All of these things are going to come to a culmination in this servant, this one who he is going to send. All of the biblical storyline has this picture of this one who's going to come as the the son of Adam and Eve, the son of Abraham, the son of David, who is going to defeat the devil, who's going to defeat Babylon the Great. I've told you these things from of old. So go out of Babylon, flee from Chaldea, declare this with a shout of joy, proclaim it. Send it out to the end of the earth. Say, this is the message that they are supposed to shout, proclaim, declare, send out. The Lord has redeemed His servant Jacob. They did not thirst. How has He redeemed them? They did not thirst when He led them through the desert. This is the book of Numbers that He's alluding to. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and water gushed out. God provided. And then, somewhat juxtaposed to that, he ends this this part of the oracle with, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. That seems incongruous. He's just been talking about the salvation of Israel, but he's giving a truth here. As he was bringing the people of Israel through the wilderness after he redeemed them from Egypt, when he brought them out of Egypt, not all entered into the land. Why? Because there is no fellowship with God for the wicked. They are left in the wilderness. So there's that stark warning. And then notice the continuation of thought if you just scan to chapter 49. Listen to me, O coastlands going to pick up on that same language as you move forward but here we see the salvation of God's people we see God saying that he's going to redeem his people he's going to bring them back from exile so the first point that I want to make to you is here hear O church listen up we are to love the Lord our God and him alone and we are to obey his word Both major sections of this chapter, 1 through 11, and then 12 through 22, start with this command to hear. This command to hear, as I've already said, is about the uniqueness of God. There is no other God. We have no other God. We believe that there is one God who exists in three persons Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you want to see how that works, read Ephesians 1. It is beautiful. Read 1 Thessalonians 1. Absolutely stunning. Colossians 1 gives a picture of that as well we have this picture of the uniqueness of God 
48.1, however, pictures Israel as those who confess God, but not in truth or right. A Christian indeed can only, a Christian indeed, can only and truly confess God rightly. But I want to ask you, do you have the right confession of God? And what does this look like in your life? It is not a mere verbal assent that you make that Jesus is Lord, though that is certainly part of it. It is not merely knowing theological information that is very good and important and true. Right? That you understand who Jesus is. That He's one person with two natures. Truly human. Truly divine. Those are important things. You have to confess those. But does your life show a pattern of love towards God that manifests itself in obedience? So Jesus, when He, when he said, how will you know My disciples? He says, you will know My disciples their love one for another. And then he said, you will, know, you will know my disciples by their fruit. He talks about how a thorn bush bears thorns and a fig tree bears th- figs. Are you thorny or are you figgy? If you want to know what a Christian looks like, look at the fruit of the Spirit. Again, in Galatians 5. But read right before it when it talks about the fruit of the flesh. You don't get sermons on that one as often, right? The fruit of the flesh. Read about that. And then read about the fruit of the Spirit. That will show you to whom you belong. Read 1 John chapter 3. Actually, read all of 1 John. But read 1 John chapter 3. And it's going to say that the works of the people, who is the people of God, are evident. It is evident who are the people of God. And how is that? By the way we live. Again, not with arrogance or pride of heart. There is a surety. There is an assurance and a confidence that the Christian has. That is not the same thing as pride or arrogance. There's a love that the Christian has. There's truth that Christians cling to. And how do we cling to those things? By the grace of God. Not on our own flesh or our own strength or our own understanding. The right confession, unlike Israel's confession in 48.1, the right confession of the Christian manifests itself in the obedience to God's commands. John talks about this again in 1 John 5 where he says, and his commands are not burdensome. In this text, we also see, again, the supremacy of Yahweh. Every text in Isaiah, you're going to have this as an application point. All glory belongs to the Lord alone. God does not share His glory. He does not share His glory. His glory is revealed in what He does and in who He is. His glory was manifested in creation. Who else can create? I can barely put stuff together when I've already got the materials. Right? I'm a biblical scholar. It's an occupational hazard. Like, we are not handy people. Right? But God creates out of nothing. What, a, what an awesome thought. Have you pondered that? Have you looked around at what God has created and just stood in awe of it? Again, sometimes I think we just make application a little too hard. Be in awe of God today. Be in awe of God this week. He does not share his glory, and there is no other who is glorious like him. In Romans 12, Paul talks about how we are not conformed to this world, but we are transformed by the renewing of our mind and the spirit. And one of the first things he says after that is, be sober-minded. 
In being sober-minded, we view things the way that they truly and really are. And when we look at the world and we see it for who He is, there is nothing like God. And everything else lacks color, taste, flavor, whatever, you want, whatever sensory word you want to give it, it is lacking compared to the awesome glory of our creating, redeeming, and sustaining God. This week, when you find yourself in a difficult position, you will, I promise, it will happen sometime this week, right? Think about the awesomeness of God. Ponder it. Don't think about the, the woe of your situation stuck in traffic again. Think about the glory and the goodness of God. God has given you that time. Redeem it for His glory. His glory is manifested everywhere. All of the things that He gives, all of the examples that He gives from creation to the wilderness wanderings to their their redemption from Egypt, all those pictures, they're dim reflections of the glory that God reveals in the person and work of His Son, Jesus Christ. So, if Isaiah, or if you read a psalmist, when they're talking about the awesomeness of the things that God has done, when you think about the awesomeness of things that God has done, the redemption that He has brought about in the person and work of Christ is more awesome than anything else. And the hope of future glory. There are no words. There are no words. So as we close and we think about what this looks like, I want to talk about one final point. Don't worry, I'm going to, put, I'm going to mention some texts, but I'm just going to summarize them. Read these texts later as well. I want to think about our new covenant reality, that we are people who have new hearts, that we are a people who will experience a defeated Lady Babylon through a conquering servant. Several biblical authors pick up the language from Isaiah 47 and 48. It doesn't stop here. It's not like Israel is coming out of exile and that's it. All of these are pictures of a greater exodus, a greater exile, a greater redemption from exile to come. Ezekiel 36 uses the language that Isaiah 47 and 48 use when it talks about how God is working for His glory and His holy name alone. He says, it is for my glory, for my holiness, for the sake of my holy name. And he says that what he's going to do is he's going to, he's going to, he's going to give his people a new covenant, which he calls a covenant of peace in 34 and 37. And then in 36, he's going to talk about how he's going to redeem his people by his spirit. He's going to take their heart of stone and he's going to give them a heart of flesh. He's going to cause his people for the first time ever to walk in his ways. This is going to happen through this seed of David, through this child of David, this king who is going to come. That again, Isaiah talks about in 34, 36, 37. He's been talking about it earlier in the text as well. This one from David's line is going to come and he's going to send his spirit in order to change the hearts of God's people. Brothers and sisters, we live in this reality. At least in a tenuous already not yet way. We are a people who are part of this new covenant relationship that is found in Christ, who no longer have hearts of stone, but have hearts of flesh. We are no longer enslaved to sin, but are able to live freely under the rule and reign of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Read Romans 6 if you want a really good explanation of what this looks like. 
and into seven, and then just read the rest of the book of Romans. Because you always want to read a passage in context, right? God is revealing his, through his prophets the plan for the ages. We should hear this and know what he has done, stand in awe. We also see a picture of, of this lady Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18. John pictures the adulterous Babylon and her beasts. And regardless of one's view of the book of Revelation, right? Babylon in that text in here represents the world in its antithesis, its, its antagonism towards God and his people. God has provided this image here that John picks up on later from both Isaiah and other prophetic texts to talk about how God is going to remove the world and its systems and set up a new kingdom. So when you see the brokenness of this world, understand that it will be made new. If you do not see the brokenness of this world, please talk to your neighbor, the person next to you, or the pastor, or, or someone. The brokenness of this world is so evident. God is going to renew that. And how is he going to do that? How is he going to overthrow Lady Babylon? How is he going to defeat this great dragon? Through his servant that he is going to send. That he has already sent from our perspective, but from Isaiah's perspective, through the servant that he is going to send. And from our perspective, that servant who is going to come again and judge the living and the dead. The way in which God will bring about new hearts of his people through a new, is through a new covenant is through his servant, Jesus Christ, our Lord. What an awesome thought. At the end of Isaiah 48, Isaiah is told to declare, to shout, to proclaim, to send out the message of the salvation of the people of Judah to the ends of the earth. Thinking about the grand greatness of this storyline that should grip our hearts, how much more are we to declare, shout, proclaim, send out the message of this final and full salvation offered by God's servants, by God's servant to his servants to the end of the earth? How much more should it be on our tongues, on our hearts, on our lips, the awesomeness of our God in what he has done through Jesus Christ to our neighbors? Declare that this week to your children. Declare that this week to your co-workers. Declare that this week to your classmates. Declare that this week to your husband and your wife. Declare that this week to everyone who has ears to hear and eyes to see. Let us pray.